You know, spending on police is a failed policy. It has not produced the results that people deserve. We need our mental health clinics reopened. We need housing. We need debt forgiveness. We need cash payments and permanent employment and fully funded schools. These are the things that we need. These are the things that make us safe. And this is what the movement to defund the police calls for. We're not taking care of the people nor the police in my eyes. We're just not. But us spending more money on police than we do on the basic uh, needs of life is, is, is crazy. Hello, welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Alex Nitkin. I will be your host this week. There is, to put it mildly, a big range of opinions about policing in America and of the Chicago Police Department in particular. But there's one thing that it seems like just about everyone can agree on, no matter their perspective, and that is that we as a society ask too much of our police officers. They are out there every single day facing danger and trauma and interacting with all of our social problems none of the rest of us want to deal with. And in some cases, they are losing their lives for it, as Officer Ella French did earlier this month when she was shot to death and her partner was critically wounded. And for the past few decades, at least, the conventional wisdom in response to this has been to bolster and reinforce and improve policing so that officers can be better equipped to get a handle on keeping people safe. That helps explain this moment that we're in now, where the Chicago Police Department has an annual budget of about $1.7 billion. That's about 40% of Chicago's main budget fund called the Corporate Fund. But there has been a notion brewing actually for a pretty long time in some Chicago organizing circles that that approach is backwards, that if we want to make the city safer, we should be taking that money out of policing and making different kinds of investments elsewhere. The movement to defund the police got a lot of attention last year, positive and negative, during all of the uprisings in response to the murder of George Floyd, and it's still very much on the minds of organizers and the Chicago City Council as it gets ready to pass a budget for the 2022 fiscal year. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is going to release her annual budget proposal in the next few weeks, and she has made it clear that she has no interest in taking away resources from the police. But there is a small but substantial number of aldermen, most of whom were just elected in 2019, who do want to go that route. They include 20th Ward Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor, who talked to me about what defund the police means to her and how she is going to push to get that goal expressed in the budget one way or another this year. But first, I also talked to Emma Tai. She's the executive director of United Working Families, which is one of the city's biggest and most politically active groups supporting police abolition right now. I talked to Ty about how her group is trying to influence the budget process this year, how they want the city to spend the $1.9 billion it's getting from the federal government under the American Rescue Plan Act, and how organizers are trying to reimagine the way public safety works in a city that is hurting from gun violence every single day. So here is our conversation, which we recorded last Monday. Emma Ty, welcome to the Clubcast. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start off by just uh, talking a little bit about United Working Families, what you guys are all about, and some of the organizing and advocacy work that, that you all do in the you know Chicago budgeting space. Yeah, definitely. So United Working Families is an independent political organization. We fight for political power uh, with, for, and by Black and Brown working class and unemployed people. Um, you know, we in our in my experience, um, it's been very hard to really get the kinds of substantive wins and investments that folks need um, in their lives here in Chicago, which is just a place of such staggering inequality and inequity. And so United Working Families seeks to change that by really securing political power. So since 2018, we've elected 20 of our members to elected office across city, state, and county government. 
and including now um, a suburban college county, uh, community college board. And, um, you know, from that point of view and from that position in power, we advocate for legislative changes um, to material, materially improve people's lives. One of the ways that we've seen UWF do that, at least over the past couple of years, is in advance of or sort of at the beginning of budget season, releasing this sort of budget proposal or at least list of specific spending priorities. You know, here's what we want out of this budget. Talk to me about that approach. Why, why do it that way to sort of preempt the mayor's own um, budget? And talk to me about what that's going to look like this year now that we have a sort of expedited schedule and also this big dump of federal money coming in. At the end of the day, budgets are moral documents because they tell us about the political will of the mayor, of the city council, um, of city government, and they tell us who the mayor and city council deems worth investing in, right? So when a developer gets, you know, billions of dollars in a TIF for Lincoln Park, you know that, well, meanwhile, people cannot afford food, cannot afford housing on the south or west side of Chicago. That tells you something, right, about who the city is putting first. And so we've always inserted ourselves into this budget process because we believe that in Chicago, which is, you know, I think the fifth richest city in the richest country in the history of the entire world, no one should be going hungry. No one should be homeless. No one should not know uh, where their next paycheck's gonna come from, who their doctor is, where they can go for mental health services, who they can call when someone is in crisis. No one should have to feel that way. No one should be afraid to send their children out to play for fear of them getting hit by a bullet. These things are unconscionable and they are not inevitable. They are political decisions. And those political decisions are expressed every year in the budget that gets passed by city council. Tell me what UWF is going to be advocating for in this budget to really advance its own um, you know, public safety priorities or in terms of how you think that the city should be spending its dollars on public safety. I know that there's been a real advocacy on, on the part of, you know, your group and other sort of affiliated groups to move um, money away from Chicago Police Department in favor of other kinds of program services. Tell me what that proposal might look like going into this year. So if you let me, I'd like to just start by acknowledging um, the tremendous trauma and loss and grief of this moment. We're coming off of uh, another weekend of mass shootings. Um, and also this weekend, we lost a young organizer who played just really an irreplaceable role in the campaign to end money bond and to defund the police. Um, you know, and we're up to 6,000 shootings now in Chicago between 2020 and 2021. And um, so this conversation about the budget and where the, the city spends our money is, in my mind, you know, it's not an esoteric conversation, but it's one that affects people's lives in real serious ways. You know, today is no exception, but Every Monday, uh, we are getting texts about member UWF members whose friends, cousins, sisters, sons um, were shot or, in the worst cases, killed this past weekend. You know, every every Monday, it's who's got the GoFundMe for the funeral expenses. You know, who has a therapist who will take their insurance? What hospital is the person at? Who is letting the school community know? Um, and so, I just want to really center this discussion and the fact that each of these shootings is a tragedy. And each of these shootings was preventable. And the decision to spend more money every year on the police who failed to prevent it um, and who more than half the time don't even close the case instead of on the basic human needs of people in crisis is unconscionable. 
And that's really the heart of this demand. Um, the other thing that I would say is that I think when we talk um, that the movement to defund the police is not about absence, but about presence. Um, it is not about cuts. It is about investments. What people need is housing, mental health, public health, youth jobs, a robust public sector, good schools. Those are the things that people need. And that's what the movement to defund the police is about. A lot of people might look at the violence that we've seen over the course of this year and say, we need more police officers in the streets. We need more law enforcement helping prevent that. Why is that not the right approach in your view? Well, I think the first argument that I would make is that Chicago has more police per capita than any other major city in the United States. So if more police made us safer, Chicago would be the safest city in the country. And we all know that that's not the case. Um, you know, the Chicago Police Department receives $1.8 billion in taxpayer money every year. But meanwhile, you know, Mayor Lightfoot is asking us to celebrate something like $14 million in youth prevention programming. And this is why we organize around budgets, because they're moral documents. They tell us who's being looked out for. So when the Federal CARES Act funding was dispersed to Chicago, the Lightfoot administration spent $281 million of that of those federal relief funds, which were intended to support recovery and relief on the, poli on the police, even though you know, 83,000 people applied for just 2,000 rental relief grants that spring. The Office for People with Disabilities got $2,000 of those funds, and the Chicago Police Department received $281 million. So these are political de decisions. They have moral consequences. And I don't know how you can look at the summer that we've been having this year, the heartbreaking tragedies day after day, and conclude that this was money that was well spent. You know, spending on police is a failed policy. It has not produced the results that people deserve. We need our mental health clinics reopened. We need housing. We need debt forgiveness. We need cash payments and permanent employment and fully funded schools. These are the things that we need. These are the things that make us safe. And this is what the movement to defund the police calls for. When you say defund the police, does that mean entirely get rid of the police department? Does that mean keep police funding as is, but raise other services to commensurate levels or somewhere in between? The movement to defund the police is fundamentally a police abolition project. It's an abolitionist project, um, which is so it's defund as a means to abolish. And I just want to be clear that when I use the word abolition, you know, we take it to mean kind of like a project of creation, right? The work um, of defund and the work of abolition is to create the conditions that make prisons, policing, and surveillance obsolete. There's no police because there's no need for police. Um, and I think that people might say, you know, that's too idealistic or that's too unrealistic. But I guess I would argue that I don't know why it's too idealistic to want to live in a world where we, where we no longer have an institution that kills 1,100 people every year. And so I don't know why it's so idealistic or so unrealistic to not want to ever have another Adam Toledo or George Floyd, or Breonna Taylor, or Laquan McDonald. I don't know how you can watch those videos and conclude that this is a morally acceptable way to structure our society. And that's why if you look at the Chicago Rescue Plan, we're proposing putting hundreds of millions of dollars into housing, into homelessness, crisis response, childcare, debt relief, mental health, cash payments. You know, the city is receiving $2 billion in federal funds, and for once we want our money, this is taxpayer dollars, we want that spent on our people, on our actual needs, not on the banks, not on the cops, but on goods and services, public goods and services that promote human flourishing, 
I don't think that's too much to ask. And I do think that that is an abolitionist project. Let's talk a little bit more about some of those alternatives specifically. We've heard there are, are terms and, and keywords that float around like treatment, not trauma as a proposal, peace book, ordinance, um, different kinds of uh, non-police emergency responses. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of either those proposals or, or what kinds of programs, public services the city can offer, should be offering to fill in that gap where police may or would not be there in the future? The first example that I want to lift up is the campaign called Treatment Not Trauma, um, which is a push to spend about $100 million um, to revitalize the city's mental health, public mental health infrastructure, which, as um, you may know, was really decimated under the Emanuel administration in which, you know, Mayor Lightfoot made a campaign promise to rebuild. So here we are, you know, two and a half, three years later on that particular promise. so treatment, not trauma, would essentially send um, non-police responders to mental health to people who are having mental health crises. Um, they would be based out of the reopened public mental health clinics that provided life-saving care um, to people, particularly black and brown folks, on the south and west sides of the city. Um, and um, it is, you know, for for me personally, uh, as someone who you know, has friends who have family members who are struggling with, um, you know, real mental health crises. Um, You know, I've heard them say, I wish that we had options other than calling the police because I'm worried what happens if the police show up at their door um, because this person is um, really in a lot of need right now. Um, And I'm not sure that the police, (laughs) the police showing up with the guns is going to help them. Um, So I want to really lift that up as an example of something that there's a real tremendous push for. Um, Whenever we're out knocking on doors, people talk about just the real need for mental health, particularly after the pandemic, um, when people are just really struggling with a tremendous amount of loss and grief um, and the need to be investing in that. Um, Another option that I would mention or another, um, you know, really essential uh, part of the uh, defund work that's being pushed is around um, a measure called the Peace Book, which is essentially a response to um, a long practice called both including the Gang Book and the Gang Database of profiling and surveilling young people of color. And instead of that, really like investing um, in Black and Brown young people, um, in their mutual aid networks, in their peace circles and restorative justice practices, um, and the autonomy and their ability to kind of thrive. Um, free of surveillance and over-policing. So those are two measures that um, we feel really strongly about and are definitely like pushing for um, in this year's budget negotiations. And which I should mention, you know, alongside, you know, direct cash payments to people, rent, rental assistance, debt relief, um, uh, youth jobs programming, a lot of those things have been allocated through the Chicago Rescue Plan Ordinance, which is currently sitting in budget committee Um, That's a plan to allocate the $1.8 billion in federal relief funds that are coming to the city and that half of which has actually already arrived. Let's talk about what UWF is going to do tactically from here on out through the course of the 2022 budget. The Chicago Rescue Plan has about a dozen sponsors, which is pretty substantial compared to you know, what it would have maybe in a previous city council, and that's where some of that political work that you were talking about comes in, um, electing some of those leaders who would support it. But you're still a long way from 26 votes there, and especially as the mayor has 
come out and, and pretty heavily suggested, no, the Chicago Police Department is going to see an increase in its budget. How do you leverage that limited number of allies that you have in the city council to really advance those spending priorities that we've um, been talking about here? Well, I would say that, you know, the work of our allies in city council, as well as, you know, organizations on the ground outside pressure has already led to some pretty significant concessions. You know, like six months ago, Mayor Lightfoot was talking about spending an overwhelming amount of the federal relief dollars on just straight up payments to the banks. Um, And that's been kind of taken off the table um, as, you know, groups have reached out to Secretary Yellen and talked about, um, you know, sort of really reinforced the need to make sure that cities are spending this on people and not on banks. So I'd say that's already been a pretty major win um, that Lightfoot, the Mayor Lightfoot has walked back from that. Um, and similarly, I think that, you know, we worked with a number of um, aldermen, notably Alderman Daniel Espada, to break the story about how Mayor Lightfoot spent $280 million of the CARES Act funds on the police department. Um, And I think as a result of that work, you know, we did see allocations um, with the remainder of the CARES Act funding towards human services um, and human need. So, you know, we've already seen, I think, some concessions um, and the work is just about keeping up the pressure um, and making sure that aldermen and the mayor are hearing from um, the people in the neighborhoods who we're talking to every day um, who know what their needs are. Um, and to, um, frankly, I think, have a right to these funds and to making sure that these funds are used in ways that um, support their well-being and their recovery. One of the other wrinkles to this whole conversation that we have to keep in mind is that the city council is on the verge of approving a collective bargaining agreement with the Fraternal Order of Police, the department's rank-and-file officer union, that would commit the city to about $378 million in officer back pay. That's going back years to when their last contract expired. Um, It would lock a lot of other assurances into place about, you know, how the department gets staffed and funded. You know, how do you work around that if your goal is to draw funding out of the department? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that it's really important to remember is that this is a process that is sort of intentionally confusing, intentionally obscure. It's not accessible. Um, And I think that the FOP contract is like a really good example of a place where there can be a lot of confusion, Um, right? So, you know, last year, the City Council Office of Financial Analysis um, provided City Council with, um, you know, millions of places where um, the Chicago Chicago Police Department could cut funds. Um, And it's, again, you know, so COFA went through and named these CBD line items that could be cut, which are the same ones that, you know, we've been told by other people are sort of quote unquote contractually obligated. So it's really like, again, I think it's not clear um, what this contract means in terms of allocations of city dollars. Um, But I do think that, you know, one thing that I would bring us back to is that, you know, lots of workers have contracts with the city, right? Lots of city workers outside of the Chicago Police Department, sanitation workers, CDPH workers, even clerical workers inside the Chicago Police Department all also have union contracts with the city. Um, And so I think we need to be paying attention um, to the fact of kind of who's put on the chopping block first. So I think that, uh, you know, the sort of contractual limits on what we can do with the budget is, um, 
you know, it's a political argument just like any other. Emma Tai, Executive Director of United Working Families, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So budget advocacy aside, you know how at the beginning there, Ty said one of United Working Families' goals is to elect like-minded political leaders? That is exactly what they did in 2019 when they supported the candidacy of Jeanette Taylor, who is our next guest. Taylor was an active organizer with the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, and now she is one of six self-identified Democratic Socialist aldermen in the city council. I talked to her about her frustrations with CPD leadership, how she wants to see CPD's budget reinvested, and how she squares those goals with the close relationships that she keeps with police and pro-police constituents in her ward. So here is my interview with Jeanette Taylor. So I want to start off by asking you a little bit about the budget process this year and how it is unfolding so far from where you sit. It's happening a little earlier this year. The city has this extra pot of money from the federal government to sort of work through. What has the interface looked like, I guess, between Alderman and the mayor's budget office, between Alderman and you know the budget committee looked like so far this year? So as far as I know, they've had one um, meeting around what we're spending the budget on, but every caucus is talking about how they want to see the money spent in their particular wards. But it's still moving too fast because we don't have the budget book. We don't have the tools we need to see where they've actually spent the money. And I'm not for certain, but I think what's going to happen is they're going to do what they did with the with the CARES Act money, ask if we would give her permission to decide how the money is spent. And I push to the caucuses that I'm a part of, we should do that. Because the last pocket of CARES money went to police. And I never saw any well-being checks. I never saw them knocking on doors. And that's, we got bigger problems. And so we got a, a, a host of folks, once the eviction moratorium um, ends, that will be homeless and we'll be looking at a large population of people being homeless and there are other ways for us to spend the money and it's not on, on police. You mentioned the caucuses. You're a member of the Progressive Caucus, the Democratic Socialist Caucus. Can you tell me a little bit about what those and conversations are looking like? And of course the Black Caucus. Can you just tell me a little bit about how those three caucuses are, what those conversations are looking like, how they are sort of approaching the budget process as it comes up here. It's us basically using our leverage in those caucuses to to say what we want to see the money spent on. And so programming, of course. But we also want to see some, in, in the words of Howard Brookings, some human infrastructure. And so how are we taking care of the people in our community? Um, how are we making sure that the resources actually get to them that they actually need? Um, us, us taking a look at accountability. So one of the conversations that we're having is around why people won't go back to work. Like, you know, people have actually, they want to, they collect, cause they get more unemployment than they do a regular job. That says something about this country. This says something about the way we treat workers. They're not, I wouldn't go back to that either. How are we getting people to come back? How are we getting people to, better health care because that's one of the biggest issues is the health care system sucks if corona is so much like the flu then why are so many people dying because they don't have access to health care and so but then you got hospitals and clinics in our community closing because they haven't made the money that they're used to making 
And so us being real intentional about how we spend this money is how, and those are the conversations in all uh three and it's also a woman's caucus. I forgot all about that. So I'm in four caucuses. So just us being intentional about how we spend this money and making sure that we're talking to folks about what should we be doing. In the next couple of weeks, the City Council Budget Committee is going to start holding departmental hearings to talk about different departments and agencies' budget proposals going into 2022, including the Chicago Police Department. I'm curious what kinds of questions you're going to have for CPD leaders during those hearings and what specifically you're going to be looking at most closely in the CPD budget. So I'm not on the Budget Committee, number one. And number two, I listen in, and I do have the opportunity to talk, but what are they going to tell me other than the violence is so high and there's so many shootings that we got to put more money into the police? That is not making us safe. And let's not act like this violence has not been happening. This is nothing new to Chicago. This is nothing new to this country. We're just going to use it to, to, to use it as a reason for us investing more in a system that has not really protected us or made us safe. Um, and so I don't have no questions. What, what, could I, what could they honestly tell me? They're going to spend $30,000 for more cameras, but then when somebody gets killed, that camera footage is not available or didn't see anything. They're going to tell me officers is going, are going to work overtime when you're saying they're not taking care of their mental health, they need time off. And so it's nothing that I'm going to learn from that budget hearing other than them trying to make a case to get more of the city's money. They already get 38% of the city's budget. How much more can they get? And this is not about safety. This is about their rhetoric to say the police makes us safer and that they are protecting the community. And we all know that's not true. You know, I feel like a big part of this debate over police funding comes back to this debate over what the residents of the city want in the first place. I remember last year the mayor's office put out a budget survey and something like 87% of people responded and said they want money redistributed away from the police department, the mayor has come back and said, well, when I talk to people out in, in communities that are experiencing a lot of crime, they say we want more police. My question to you is, what are you hearing from your constituents in the 20th Ward about the role that they want police to play or not play in public safety? So I live in a ward that's half and half. Part of my community hates the police. The other part loves the police. And I always say I'm somewhere in the middle because Police are people. Um, I'm in four different police districts. Um, I work with all the districts. I work with all my commanders. And so I respect those people. And a lot of times I feel sorry for them because they're asked, they're being asked to help with a problem that they necessarily didn't help create. So I have the luxury to see it on both sides. I saw young people get attacked by the police doing the riots. I had to go to the police station to make sure those young people were okay and that they were released safely to their families. But I also saw black officers being uh, caught in the middle of Black Lives Matter and back to blue. And so I get it on both sides. But at the end of the day, for the last 20 years, 30 years, we've invested more in the police than we do housing, education, uh, programs and any of that, and it, the city is still no safer. We're over-policed. The police have answered a bunch of calls that they should not be answered. We should have had psychologists and psychiatrists go with some of these calls. Having these issues with your family, those are social workers. 
those are the police have taken on way too much. And so we're not taking care of the people nor the police in my eyes. We're just not. But us spending more money on police than we do on the basic uh, needs of life is, is, is crazy. Just doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm thinking back to this special city council meeting from the beginning of the summer when aldermen were all brought in to ask questions of Superintendent David Brown of the police department. And you, I remember, had some tough questions for him, but you also said just what you were saying now, that you have close relationships with the police commanders in your district, that you, you know, you care about their safety. And you said that the idea of defund the police has never been about getting rid of the police. Um, it's about funding other things at, at, you know, the right levels. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, tell me what the idea of defund the police means to you. So for me, it's stop investing in a system that is not working. Over-policing has not worked. We still, we're still paying lawsuits for John Burge victims. We're still trying to get those people released. So that system has not worked. Now, are we in a place where we could just say abolish the police altogether? We are not. That is not this type of country because we created a lot of these conditions which cause people to, 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 to commit crimes. The thing about this, the federal minimum wage for tip workers is $2.18. You gotta be kidding me. And so we've created those conditions to say why crime is bad and why things happen. If you reinvest that money into things that actually matter, so after school programming, make sure young people are getting a quality education, making sure families can go to a, a health institution for mental or physical health. Putting up, having quality grocery stores in your community, making sure that that young people can't get like they have no place to turn because there are so much things for them to do. Investing in, in our seniors, making sure they have safe spaces, um, they're well taken care of. Tell me what major city continues to invest invest in the police and it has changed the dynamics. Not one city I've seen across the country. So we can't continue to do the same thing over and over again. But we can invest in people. We can raise the federal minimum wage. We can do both. There are a lot of things in our power when it comes to policy we can do. We just don't do them. Why put $2 million in violence prevention or an additional $5 million in police? Why can't we put that into youth investment where young people work all year round? Why can't we make the businesses that we help to stay afloat, make them intern a young person in their business as a part and it's a paid internship because we love asking young people to do stuff for free. Let's talk more about those alternative investments that you're bringing up or those other areas. You were a co-sponsor of the Chicago Rescue Plan uh, introduced over the summer that calls to spend all of the American Rescue Plan funding coming to Chicago, not at all in policing, but to things like you know, what you're talking about, supportive housing, job training, anti-violence intervention, um, a guaranteed income program. You know, people might look at that and, and say, well, those things are all well and good, but how do they actually stop people from picking up a gun and, and shooting someone? You know, how is that better at directly preventing violence than police officers would be? So I'm not selling drugs if I make a living wage. I'm not selling drugs if I, if I have a secure place to sleep every night. Um, I'm not selling drugs if the institutions in my community make sure that me and my kids can eat fresh fruits and vegetables and not flaming hot some juice. It's common sense. We just won't do it. 
We just won't do it because that's not what this country is built on. This country is built on mistreating a set of folks and creating this chaos. We can see for centuries that this has not worked. It just hasn't. And when do we say enough is enough? I don't want to spend my tax dollars on systems that I know don't work. I'd rather opt out and not deal with it at all. But I am I am honestly tired of a system that I pay tax in to treat me as I'm a second-class citizen. And that's what this country does. And Chicago is one of the biggest metropolis and one of the biggest cities of corruption. My last four predecessors have been indicted and went to jail. Oh, and, and, and the expectation of some of my community members is if you just stay out of jail, you'll be okay. No, it's to teach my community how to take care of itself. It's, it's to show them that the same services that people get on the north side, we also need to get on the south side. Shouldn't be no difference. You know, the mayor has already told us when she came out with the preliminary budget, with the, the deficit projection and all that, that we should probably expect to see a increase in CPD's budget in her proposal when it comes out. Um, we know also that for all of the sponsors of Chicago Rescue Plan, there are probably at least as many aldermen who, who come from that opposite position of, we need to you know unequivocally give CPD all the funding that they want and more, they need resources. Tell me about kind of you know tactically from a council standpoint and maybe an organizing standpoint, how do you how do you overcome all that? How do you work in the next couple of months to make sure that some of the Chicago Rescue Plan priorities end up in the final budget that gets passed? So using my leverage is my vote. That's number one. So they would love I haven't voted yes to one C one city budget yet. So they want me to vote yes on this budget. That's number one. And number two, having a real conversation with my community about Tell me back in the day what made you safe. Tell me what are the things that were in the community that's different than what we have now. And how are we fighting for them? How are we asking for them? And so it's really informing our communities around what this budget means, what we actually spend money on. People don't realize we spend $500,000 on flowers down Michigan Avenue that they plant and unplant and then they throw away. The, the number of things that are ridiculous that we spend money on that don't make any sense. And Chicago was not broke. When we first got into office, one of the things that we all talked about was how do we get progressive revenue? They don't want to do a LaSalle Street tax. They don't want to do um, a real estate transfer tax. They don't want to do any of those things that they know because that hurts their base. That hurts the 1%. It does not help us. And so the 99% gonna have to stand up and vote a lot of these folks out of office, know that some of these people don't serve us, they serve a special interest, they don't serve all people, and that we gotta change in this country or the rise of 2028, all y'all gonna be worried about. It's a different set of young people. They're not scared of your dogs, they ain't scared of water hoses, they're not and they've been telling us for years about their mistreatment in these different systems that we allowed them to be in. And so they are rising up in the way and either you're going to roll with them or get rolled over. And my, my thing is they're right. They're absolute. This generation is not lost. It's been neglected. And we got to own that. So you, as you mentioned, you voted against both of the mayor's budgets so far. Tell me what would have to be in a budget, what a budget looks like that gets a yes vote from Jeanette Taylor. No increase in taxes. Unless you're taxing the rich, it's a no. What else is in that budget? No more giving. They, they cannot increase the police budget. 
that's a that's a no for me. Not one dollar. Not one dollar. No. And I want people to remember us decreasing the police budget last year by two percent were vacant positions that they were not using. So it really, we really didn't defund the police. We defunded those positions that they just had sitting because nobody wants to be the police. And you can't really blame them because from what you see, it was it was one more thing in the budget that I just, it was really for me, the property tax increase and the fines and fees. I'm not, there's a camera that's in between my ward and, and uh, Sophia King's ward that's made $20,000 because now instead of if you go over 35 or 33 the fine goes up I'm, I'm i'm not gonna tax my community out we're already going through gentrification and uh investment that that is for other folks and not us in my community i'm not gonna sign on to that because that's not what i i agree to and that's not what my people want to see you were talking about you know having sympathy for police officers and people who are doing doing that work or trying to since the murder of, of Officer Ella French earlier this month, there has been this real outcry from some in the police department, even some in the city council, that the city hasn't done enough to support police. Some have even blamed the defund the police movement or, or abolitionist oh, yeah, organizers. I was saying that they... the piece of shit by one of my coworkers um, and said that it was ultimately my fault. Who fought is it Laquan McDonald? Whose fault is Rakia Boyd? Whose fault is Ronnie Man Johnson? And the list goes on and on and on. And so when was the see, this is the problem with pro-police people and the police period. When they kill somebody, it's I feared for my life. Or I'm the police, I have the authority. But that's not, and they're never held accountable. Think about this. How many cops, and somebody sent me a message to say it's more than two. How many cops have actually been indicted and went to jail? for killing somebody who we saw on camera, who we saw absolutely doing nothing. I'll wait, it ain't that many. And so this is about accountability to no matter who deals, who does the killing. I feel bad for Officer French and her partner. Yes, my prayers go out to, to her family, to his family, because I have sympathy for people, but I don't care who you are. I don't care what your title is. You can be Beyonce. You could be Queen Elizabeth. You could be Barack Obama. You could be Biden. You are to be held accountable for your actions. And that's the part that, that we don't want to talk about in the conversation. So don't give me that police morale is down. It should be because you're the people who are supposed to serve and protect us. And that's not what you're doing. I have a t-shirt that said Black Lives Matter. And in the shirt, it says all of these names of people who were killed by the police since 2000. That's a lot of names. And so don't give me that um, we, we blaming the police because they are problematic. George Floyd happened because not only did that officer put his knee on his neck, how many other officers stood around and said and did absolutely nothing and threatened people who were trying to stop that? See, that's the problem. We, 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 we love saying um, that's just one bad apple. We know one bad apple was for an entire bunch. So save that crap for somebody else who does not understand, who does not see it. You know how many officers I talked to who got into it for the right reasons but see everything wrong? And if they say anything, they're not they're dismissed. They aren't a part of this thing. And so who is who, who is policing the police? 
Because the police ain't gonna police the peace, which is why people wanted the community control over the police, which is why it got passed because they know that in their hearts that's what's right. We gotta hold people accountable no matter who they are. Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor of Chicago's 20th Ward, thank you so much for coming on the Clowncast. I hope we can talk to you again soon. Thanks again to Emma Ty and Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor for coming on. This episode of the Cloudcast was produced and edited by me, Alex Nitney. We will be back in another episode in two weeks.